Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 35. Those of you who are following me on social media know that I'm currently in treatment for breast cancer. When I was diagnosed, I just knew the podcast would need to go on hiatus because I needed to spend my limited time and energy on mentoring my students and running my grants. Jenya Yuzini Siegel, who's the guest host for this episode, asked me if I'd considered guest hosts. I thought that was a fantastic idea. And now here we are with the second guest hosted episode. And guess what? In the last few weeks, five have been recorded. I'm so excited to share them with you. My plan is to get one of these episodes out every two to three weeks because post-production just feels a little more doable during treatment than pre-production and production. I'm excited not only to showcase the excellent content in these upcoming episodes, but also showcase the guest hosts. Speaking of, in this episode, Jenya talks with Edie Strand, world-renowned expert in childhood apraxia of speech, which is often referred to as CAS. They discuss the characteristics of CAS, dynamic speech assessments for CAS, and treatments specific to CAS. I'm thankful to Jenya and Edie for taking the time to share with the See, Hear, Speak listeners. Speaking of listeners, thank you for taking the time to listen. And don't forget to check out our website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com, to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access the articles and resources that they discuss, and find more information about our guests. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a, leave a positive rating. And even if you write a review, it's very helpful in Apple Podcasts so that others who are interested in these topics can find the podcast. Thank you so much. Hello. So welcome to the See, Hear, Speak podcast. I'm Jenya Yuzini siegel I'm Assistant Professor of Speech Pathology and Audiology at Marquette University and Director of the Communication Movement and Learning Lab. And I'm so excited to be here today chatting with the venerable Dr. Edie Strand. Um, Edie, let's start by having you introduce yourself, please. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for inviting me to participate. This is my very first podcast. I've never done this before, so it's, it's quite fun, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So uh, I am getting older, so I have had a long career, <laughs> so I'll try to make it brief. Um, I got my, um, my master's degree, actually, in 1973, so I have been at this for quite some time. Uh, I did work for nine years as a clinician, first in the public schools and then in private practice, primarily because I wanted to work in clinics and hospitals. I was more interested in medical speech pathology. And in those days, uh, most hospitals contracted out. So I ended up with a very diverse private practice, um, which was very exciting and fun. But I just wanted to understand more about why what we did worked. Yes. and didn't work and was very interested in apraxia of speech at that time in adults. And at that time, the University of Wisconsin-Madison had the power team in apraxia and motor speech disorders. And I was very fortunate to be there for four years uh, getting my doctorate. I spent a couple of years at the University of Vermont teaching and then uh, nine years at the University of Washington as a professor and assistant professor and then associate in their department, which I loved. Uh, I was then extremely fortunate to uh, be recruited to the Mayo Clinic um, where I worked with Joe Duffy for almost 16 years. 
uh, in the Department of Neurology. So I guess I, I say all that for, because it's important to me that people, that I <laughs> that people know that I'm a clinician. Yes. Uh, although I've taught uh, at the university level for a long time, my primary heart and interest is always in the clinician with both adults and kids who have trouble communicating. And my work at Mayo just allowed me to reach a whole different level of clinical skill, uh, knowing a lot more about all neurologic communication disorders, both in adults and kids. So I feel very fortunate for that. I'm retired now, live in Seattle, uh, because my daughter who lives here uh, had children and I'm now a <laughs> Nana and spent a lot of time uh, with my grandchildren, which is just a real blessing, so. Yes, yes. Oh, well, we're so excited to have you here and the wealth of experience that you bring. And um, I definitely think of you as, um, like the clinical expert in CAS really. And um, and I just love every time I see a publication with your name on it, because I know how much you're bringing to the table with that. You know, obviously you have, you know, the scholarly piece, but you have all of this hands on, you're doing the work too. And that just brings such an added perspective, I think. Um, well, I think that's why one reason I speak a lot around the country and, 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 around the world actually. And I think the reason is that when, when a person does have a research background, but also lots of years of clinical experience, it's easier to bring the evidence base to the clinician in a way that they can actually apply. And yes. I'm, I just feel so fortunate that I have been by happenstance really, although by my passion for the clinical work uh, to be in that position. So it's, it's I feel very lucky. Yes, that's wonderful. I think the best feedback, you know, when you give a talk and um, the participants have to provide feedback after when they say like, this was so applicable, or I can use these skills right away. I think, oh, that's good. You know, we did a good job at that. So I'm sure you get that all the time. Um, I thought that maybe you could start by providing our listeners a little bit of a historical perspective on CAS or childhood apraxia of speech. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a long, interesting story. I, I can tell you a few things about the early history of this. And I yeah. think many of us, you know, who are interested in this population kind of know the, the more recent story. But, you know, this all began early in our field in the 1950s. People were starting to categorize uh, speech disorders, if you will. And I think one of the earliest classification was, of course, Merle, uh, Miller and Morley. And I believe that was in 1950. And they had, she had a category of like, or they had a category of like five uh, disorders. And it was like deafness. And then they had a defective arctic or dysarthria. They kind of put all of that together, delayed language. And then they had one called dyslalia, which today we would think of our typical uh, later sound developing arctic problems like L's and R's and, or consonant substitution probably enveloped what is now phonology and just traditional arctic. And then stammering, they called, uh, you know, disfluency or stuttering. Then a few years later, I mean, this was what's interesting to read about this. And I, I know that you put resources on um, the website. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm going to include some of these early articles if anyone's yeah. interested in just looking. That's a great idea. And even in the broader sense of our field, like how do these concepts, categories, descriptions of disorder develop over time? And when did real research in this area, as we kind of might know it today, uh, start? So I think it was a few years later, maybe 54, where I think it was again Morley and some of her colleagues uh, who further differentiated a subgroup of kids and she used the, uh, they used the, the title articulatory dyspraxia. And in my reading of it, because I got interested in this for a while, um, I believe that was the first time that that term had been used. Um, but a lot of what she talked about or he talked, they talked about in that day was um, similar to some of what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. So these really aren't brand new ideas that have come about over the last 20 years or so. Um, I think the most seminal early research article was by Yoss and Darley at the Mayo Clinic in about the early 70s, 74, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, I think so. And I'll put that on there, where they did kind of the first real research study that used discriminative analysis and other things to differentiate a subgroup of children with our tick problems who also had characteristics or who had primarily the characteristics uh, that were similar to what they were seeing at Mayo in the adult apractic patients. And so that's why they designed this experiment. And that was the first time I could find that the term developmental apraxia of speech was used. Well, of course, at about that time, the whole field of phonology started. You know, this is embarrassing to say, but I'm old enough that we didn't have phonology in our graduate programs. There was no such thing. There was no research. There were no terminology. We just learned our tick. I'm serious. It's just like wild <laughs> to think about that. Like, I know. Just Maybe it was just a school I went to, but, <laughs> but um, I know that, that most of the research started, you know, soon after yeah. I, I graduated. And it was one of those things where, gosh, I had to learn it on my own as I continued to work. Uh, and I think as phonology became more uh, and more prevalent in our field, a lot of the discussion about motors, pediatric motor speech mm -hmm. disorders kind of was pushed in the background, but then it came back in, but and then people started kind of looking at it from a linguistic perspective, mm -hmm. which makes sense given what was going on. And now I think we're, we've come back to a consensus uh, that it's primarily a motor speech disorder, but it often occurs of course, <laughs> with phonologic impairment, because the motor in the impact of the motor deficits really undermines the child's uh, acquisition of phonology. So it, it makes perfect sense to me that that that's the case. And that's what makes diagnosis and treatment so hard, because we have to think about the whole child. Yes. And uh, it's a challenging, challenging area, especially for the children that are more severe, which is where most of my uh, research and clinical work has been done. Absolutely. Well, I think that's very informative. I think, um, you know, lately I've been seeing people say like, Asha didn't recognize CAS as a disorder until 2007, um, but the field did, you know, it's not like this just arrived on the scene all of a sudden in 2007. So um, it was just that was when the technical statement gave out, right? Right, right. Um, so 
Okay. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, one of the greatest challenges that, you know, pediatric speech pathologists have is differential diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech and other speech sound disorders. And some SLPs feel that um, children should be three or older to differentially diagnose CAS. And there's a little bit of confusion surrounding this, I think. Um, you know, as I like to say, it's not like something happens on the eve of a child's <laughs> third birthday, um, you know, where all of a sudden they can be diagnosed with this disorder, you know. Um, so let's, you know, I think maybe elucidate that a little bit um, for folks. Sure. You know, there is no, as you say, there's no magic age. So I always like to have people think about, well, what are we doing when we assess? Well, if you get to specifically to speech sound disorders, we know there's no biomarker, right? So just like in some of the neurologic disorders, we have to look at the constellation of symptoms or characteristics or signs and see, looking at the literature, mm -hmm. people who have designated certain categorical you know, right. systems uh, to see which of the speech sound disorders, those characteristics exemplify best, right? That's all, that's all we do to make, differential to make a differential diagnosis for speech sound disorders. Now, of course, that's in the context of a complete assessment of you know, cognitive language as well as motor skills. So I don't think I need to, to remind anybody about all that. The reason that age doesn't matter is that, you know, you can have an eight-year-old who has severe cognitive impairment, attentional difficulties, or someone on the spectrum who doesn't even have joint attention, and the age doesn't matter, you're, you're not likely to be able to do the kinds of things you need to do to get a good differential diagnosis. On the other hand, if you have a, a nonverbal two-year-old who can attend, and even in a play format, attempt direct imitation of even a simple CV or VC or CVC mm -hmm. reduplicated syllables, if they can attempt it and respond to some cueing, that allows you to observe some characteristics. And uh, Maria Grigos and Julie Case have done some wonderful uh, work looking at kids too, two years old. And in fact, Julie has some great video of her doing a, um, a dynamic assessment with a two-year-old that really impressed me. <laughs> it was, you know, it, it showed that this really can be done. Yeah. We've uh, been able to diagnose kids as young as two just by dynamic assessment that allowed us to observe the primary characteristics uh, of CAS. So I don't think there's an age Mm -hmm. Certainly, but when that child can at least attempt direct imitation and respond in any way to cueing to try to help them improve some accuracy, uh, we can often uh, elicit enough behavioral observations to feel fairly confident. And even to have that as like a working hypothesis and sort of a way to direct treatment for the time being. And That's if right. you, you know, like, I don't think a child, even with a phonological disorder, is going to get worse by doing something like DTTC, <laughs> right? So if you end up being wrong and, you know, this child does have a phonological disorder and that's their major um, sort of contribu contributing disorder, um, you know, you're not going to have done harm with that. Right. Whereas the other way could be true. You could really waste a child's time if you're focusing on phonology when there's a motor speech um, etiology. Oh. 
that's how all of my work in the in the more last 10 years or so came about because at Mayo Clinic, we had so many people who came to Mayo from all over the country and, and Europe, as a matter of fact, who were not making any progress in therapy. So they looked for a, a, another place like the Mayo Clinic because it has a reputation. And um, we would find that some of those kids had only phonologic impairments. Some of them had dysarthria. Some of them had a toxic dysarthria. Mm-hmm. And it just made me realize how difficult uh, differential diagnosis is. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that um, <laughs> the instructions for the podcast said, say what we think. So I'm going to say what we think. <laughs> I think, I think our, uh, our educational systems too have been way behind uh, the mark in terms of providing enough education in pediatric motor speech disorders. You know, every time I speak, I ask how much, did anybody have a whole class in that, even a two unit elective? And typically that's not the case. They get an hour lecture in their phonology class or the adult motor speech class. That's the most typical thing. Mm -hmm. And then we wonder why we're not sure when we're out there and this child's across the table from us. So I think my colleagues, all of us, we care so much about these kids. We want to help them or we wouldn't be in the field. But we use the tools we know. Yeah. And that's why continuing to provide, you know, educational opportunities for SLP, like I needed for phonological impairment, because I didn't get that in school. We need to have more of that available Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. clinicians to, to go to. Absolutely. You know, it's a Praxia Awareness Month right now. And so I feel like there are so many resources available and, you know, everywhere, like on, um, child apraxia treatment websites. And um, I just did a couple of uh, webinars for speechpathology.com for apraxia kids, of course. And so, Medbridge you know, there's has, has some now. Medbridge, uh, yes, some, excellent. Yeah. Good. So I think you're right. I think it's, it's getting better. There are a lot more opportunities for for yeah. people to, to learn more yeah. about this and feel more confident. And for any you know younger, newer clinicians out there who feel frustrated that they're not sure if a child's a practic or not, please keep in mind that what we do is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Think about the scope of issues that we're dealing with from cognition all the way to execution of speech. And to be totally honest with you, you won't feel confident your first six to nine years out there. You, you won't because it takes experience. It's sort of like pattern recognition. Right. When you do this a lot and for a long time, it becomes much easier to make these determinations. So I always want to tell clinicians mm-hmm. to be patient, use your village, talk to people that have more experience, yeah. keep listening to what's out there. Um, but never beat yourself up. That's, right. you just don't do that. Feel you're, you're not the most wonderful profession. Oh, we get to, we really get to make a huge impact by helping both children and adults communicate. And we should just be so grateful for that and not, not beat ourselves up when we don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I also really appreciate the recent Overbee article that talked about, um, well, it's a retrospective analysis of video from children who are like toddler and and younger. Um, 
who later went on to have CAS. And so they were able to look at these like early home videos and see the differences between children with CAS from typically developing children or those with a different kind of speech sound disorders to see that they have like lower volubility and, um, you know, maybe one or even no consonants, resonant consonants by 12 months and, you know, some really concrete things that you could be looking at if you are working with that really like birth to three age group. Um, because right. I do think yeah. those symptoms are a little different. Like, you know, I have a very precocious two-year-old who can say, you know, five to eight word sentences at this point. And he has a lot of inconsistencies still as he's learning to say words, he'll, you know, say them 10 different ways and then he'll figure it out. And, you know, um, so inconsistency is like a very normal part of typical development, but you know, when it, hangs on and we see it after age three, then I feel like that's, for me, that's what age three is about is like, mm -hmm. you know, vowels are fully robust by age three. The voicing distinction is appropriate by age three and inconsistency settles down by age three in typically developing kids. Um, and in kids with phono disorder, I, you know, and that's what I looked at with my dissertation. So I feel like that's what makes me feel more confident by age three. But this Overbee article lets us look at some other things that mm -hmm. are not those features, but that predict, you know, that kids are going to have these sort of like ongoing issues um, beyond. Is that Megan Overbee and, and yeah. Gary's work? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wish there was more of that yeah. out there. I mean, yeah. someone, some bright young uh, PhD who's had some <laughs> clinical experience needs to write an hour one for that because we need, I think you're absolutely right. Identifying these early, early factors would lead to, to, and also would lead the, the parent can go to the pediatrician and, uh, you know, the speech yes. pathologist can say, take this data to your pediatrician and, and cite those articles because yes. um, frequently the pediatricians say, oh, if there's no cognitive impairment, they'll, they'll, they'll grow out of it. I and know. I've just heard that over and over. So that, I think this kind of work is, is very important. You bring, you brought up the idea of inconsistency. Can I make just a couple of comments about yes. that? Yes. Because we know that Asha in, had said that inconsistency is one of the hallmarks. And I agree that if you, if you get repeated productions of, of something, they're going to be much more inconsistent than someone with a more pattern-based phonological sure. On the other hand, I always wanted to tell clinicians to think about the impact of severity. It's not, it's this idea of inconsistency isn't across the board. If you have a child, like I saw primarily at male who were nonverbal or very low verbal, even with normal uh, cognition, normal receptive language, um, they don't, they aren't very inconsistent because they can't right. do much. Right, right, right. On the right, other right. hand, we saw so many kids come in, oh, they're a practic because they're inconsistent. Well, these were clearly phonologically impaired kids with normal vowels, normal prosody, normal movement patterns, but they're, they had been in therapy. And mm -hmm. so they were beginning to generalize some of these yes. sounds. And as a result, they were really inconsistent, like, oh, that's my sort of uh, fork. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would happen over and over. And, and so the fact that the clinician who sent them to us based only on inconsistency, you know, that was, that was the problem. So we have to look at, at all the different yes. characteristics, yes. some of which are discriminative right. and some aren't, you know? Right. Right. Uh, so that to me, that's it's like the sum of the parts. Yes. You, yeah. yeah. And, and you yeah. have to look at the context in which you hear or see inconsistency, um, 
none of these things are, should be taken as just globals present or not, you know, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. just adds to this challenge. <laughs> you know, that's what we do is hard. It is, it is, it is. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, we, we talked about like the dynamic speech assessment. Can you just describe a little bit about what that looks like? Well, I sure can. I mean, um, one of the contributions that I think I've made is a to, to publish a dynamic evaluation of motor speech skill. But this, this just didn't come to my head as, oh, I think I'll design a test because <laughs> I haven't done that yet. You know, it, I was seeing, even back at the University of Washington, um, kids started coming to us with these, these severe uh, apraxias. And um, we were doing just traditional kinds of assessments. And it, it wasn't really giving us the information we needed. Because I'm a clinician, as we were assessing them, I would often do some cueing, da da da, and which later I went into the literature and found out what I had been doing was dynamic <laughs> assessment. Now, this was a long time ago, but still, I should have known that literature already. And uh, so I really began devouring the literature on dynamic assessment because I thought, well, of course, this, this just makes so much sense. So all that means is that instead of a static assessment, like an Arctic test, typical one where you show the child a picture, they say the answer and you, you know, score right or wrong and usually do phonetic transcription so you can look at, at patterns. In dynamic assessment, when the child makes an error, you provide cueing to try and, and correct the error. Now, this is a little different from stimulability testing that um, might be done in phonologic impairment when we're talking about at least the DEMS because the DEMS is designed for <clears throat> those kids that I saw a lot for whom our traditional our chick method, our, our, our traditional assessment methods didn't work very well. So uh, th- this is very, uh, it utilizes very simple repetition with very, um, with multimodal cueing. So sometimes we just have to give it, <laughs> I'm doing this like you can see me, I'm moving my hand, <laughs> my finger to my thumb. Sometimes we just do gestural uh, cues. Sometimes it might be a cue just as simple as, oh, let's go slower. Um, but then that doesn't work. So you add a gestural cue, that doesn't work. You use a tactile cue, that doesn't work. Then you go, okay, let's say it together at the same time. Now, I just happened to do that one day and. I'd never seen that done before. I don't know why I chose to do it, but it was remarkable. It was like, whoa, we've been it trying everything. Nothing worked. Yes. For this, for this child, yeah. it didn't work for everybody. For this child, yeah. it worked, it worked great. Other kids, and this all happened over time, would need to, um, and this I learned from the treatment I was doing that I brought into assessment. Sometimes when they just couldn't get it, um, I was thinking, what could I do to make this easier without giving up? this CV or CVC I really wanted to test. Well, why don't we make the motor planning, motor programming requirements simpler by taking out two whole systems. So instead of saying the word together at the same time, we just mouthed the word. And that was a huge help for many of these kids mm-hmm. to at least get the initial movement. Then we brought in the whisper, then we brought in the, the, the voice. So I had used that as I was developing DTTC over 
15 years. I mean, this was all trial and both the dams and ETDC were over 10 to 15 years. And it all just came from my clinical work. And people kept saying, you got to write this down. You got to write this down. And I said, oh, I can't write the dems down because there's, you know, I choose the the sample that I'm trying to elicit for each child where they are. And so eventually I said, well, absolutely. You're supposed to share what you learned. So (laughs) (laughs) I, um, I just made it very um, specific to the more severe kids. And that's mm-hmm. how I was able, able to do that. So I just rambled on. I'm not even sure I answered your original. No, that, that was great. You <laughs> described what a dynamic speech assessment was like. I think that, you know, we say, sometimes we say things and everyone is not on the same page as to what that yeah. means. I just like to be as transparent as possible when, you know, talking and writing and whatnot. But um, so that sort of talks about how you develop the DEMS and then the sort of adjunct to that now is the the treatment. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about DTTC. Well, you know, as I said, this took me, you know, this this happened over about 15 years and then it took, I wasn't able to write it all up until I retired because I think one thing that has made it hard for me to get a lot of things on paper is that at Mayo, we saw patients all day, every day. And we right. were generalists. We did you know, we saw mostly neurology patients, mostly adults, but we always saw one or two kids a day for diagnosis. We did VBI clinic, ALS clinic, craniofacial clinic, Botox clinic. I mean, we were, we were really generalists and it was, you know, they filled our schedule every day, like all, all of us out there in the real world. So all the research and writing would happen on weekends. So that's, all, that's my excuse for waiting all these years to get an article out. On <laughs> that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. Um, I started experimenting with some of these strategies, these queuing strategies back in at probably, I don't know, while I was at the University of Washington. And then when I got to Mayo, we had more and more of these kids and we were uh, developing I'm talking we, the, the pediatric group there, we would always, would all be working with these kids. Ruth Steckel, uh, who's just a terrific clinician, Becky Boss, they were the ones who worked primarily with me. And then Heather Clark came later uh, as a full professor to do a postdoc because she wanted more clinical experience. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it really now, is. Now Heather is has my, my job there, is directing actually speech pathology for the Department of Neurology. But uh, to make a long story short, over 10 years through trial and error. Uh, and also the literature, of course, this may have been before your time, Jenya, but um, we who treat motor speech and children and adults were at a motor speech conference, which happens every other year. And I forget what year this was, but Richard Schmidt, who is a cognitive motor learning right. He's, he's done the primary work in this area, came to speak to us about principles of motor learning and how motor learning occurs. And I know a lot of us are looking at each other going, what? Why don't we know this literature? What is wrong with us? We should, right. this is what right. we're doing. Right. So I remember that that was February. And that summer, because I was, I was teaching at that time, so I had more time in the summer, I devoured that literature. And that added a whole bunch of changes oh, yeah. to what I was doing in DTTC beyond the queuing uh, and beyond the hierarchy. So implementing those principles of motor learning in very specific ways uh, was a huge, uh, that really improved things. And so at that time, we were getting more and more kids who were, you know, had been in therapy for four years, no improvement, Sometimes no one had even worked on speech. 
they were doing only AAC and non-speech oral motor stuff. Okay. And, and they, they were given, they were told this child would never talk. So we decided to do some intensive treatments and where the children would come to Mayo for six weeks, stay at Ronald McDonald House, we'd see them a half hour a day, twice a day. And that's where a couple of those treatment publications came out, mm. which are not well done by the by, because they were not funded. We had uh, a full caseload, everybody, this was all extra. We had no time to do recordings. We had no time to do fidelity treatment, any of that. And we just presented it at a meeting and then they published it in the proceedings. So that's what those are. But it was a start uh, in terms of looking at the efficacy of DTTC. And I think one of the things we learned uh, is that uh, it, it really seems to help those kids that had nothing and it had no improvement for a few years, all of a sudden really show improvement. And those kids are talkers today. And I'm on Facebook, but I don't do much social media, but I, and I never post, but I, I lurk. And these <laughs> kids are out there having babies and getting yeah. jobs and talking. And it's just remarkable, you know, and their parents will write me now, even now, you know, as they I'm graduate sure. or something to say, yeah. and, and they told us he'd never talk, you know, so it is, it's just so so rewarding, you know. I think that these severe kids offer a particular challenge to clinicians who maybe don't have much background in motor learning or in pediatric motor speech disorders. So I, I as you can tell, I have a real passion for these. Yeah, these for kids. sure. Yeah. And I know you share that, Virginia. I, Absolutely. I know you do. Absolutely. Um, so in case, because it's kind of a diverse audience who listens to this podcast. So I don't even, did we even say that like what DTTC stands for? Dynamic, yeah. tactile, and temporal cueing. And yeah. this is a treatment where um, there's sort of this cueing hierarchy where again, you can um, sort of work that child's like zone of proximal development and kind of, you know, um, increase their scaffolding and then back off on it and just kind of go up and down through these, um, through this hierarchy so that you can start by, um, like Edie was talking about with the dynamic assessment, you can have the child say something with you to really um, get quite a bit of cueing, um, or you can just mime it for them and have them use just the visual input. Um, and so on. So you can, you know, again, like give them more as they need it and then back off and the entire time. And this is something that I really love and, you know, make sure to really drill home with people that as you're doing this, even if you're working on CVs and VCs and CVCs, you're working on prosody the entire time. You're changing up the speed of what you're saying, the loudness of what you're saying, so that they're developing these really robust re representations that are very dynamic. Um, and that's helping to really train their system and train what they really need the help with. Um, yeah, that all came about as I read more and more of the literature, um, bringing in more variability of practice at yes. every level of the hierarchy. I think with DT, I'm sorry that I didn't, of course, go into all that. I just get excited about what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, dynamic temporal and tactile cueing. I, I have taken some flack for that long name. And, um, but I was, you know, driving back from giving a talk in Iowa, driving back to Rochester, and I just spent all those hours thinking about, well, what is this? I have to call it. Yeah. Something. Yeah. What is this? And I thought, well, it's dynamic. And the primary um, part of the hierarchy is this temporal relationship between the, the clinician's model and the child's response. And I 
this wasn't out of my head in right from thin air. When I was a clinician working in hospitals in the 70s, I was seeing a lot of severely apractic patients. And I was working with them and not doing a whole lot of good, I could tell. And I was devastated by it. I was a fairly, it was only like four or five years out of my, my program. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started thinking I need a doctorate. Because if I get a doctorate, I'll know everything, which of course we find <laughs> out when we get a doctorate, we realize how much we don't know. But um, I read an article. I had challenged myself to read one article uh, a day. Oh I just went to the hospital about a half, well, just about a half hour <laughs> earlier, you know, and I would uh, start the article over my cup of coffee and then I'd go work at work. And then at noon, if I was, you know, billing or doing something, I'd also have time to peruse a little more of the article. And Jay Rosenbeck wrote this article called The Eight-Step Continuum. And it was basically what DTTC was based on. Because when I started applying it to adults, my results were, I mean, I wasn't, I I wasn't a researcher then. I didn't measure anything, but you know what? They left home talking a lot more than, than the ones I had seen before. So I, I feel like they were helped a lot more. Well, I thought, why am I not applying it to some of these kids that are coming in that have some of these same kind of motoric problems when they're talking? And I did, I applied it and it didn't work very well. I thought, what the heck? What am I missing? What's, I was very frustrated. Then I realized these kids had never spoken. I wasn't doing rehab. They didn't have the motor program ever, you know, performed. So I thought, well, there's probably one difference. Maybe I need to make it more dynamic. Instead of doing it simultaneously 10 times and then going to the next level, I have to go back and forth a bit. And indeed, that's what seemed to work better but I still wasn't real successful. So then I added more specific cueing and that really helped. And then that day I found out, I thought, well, let's take out the respiratory and laryngeal, make the programming easier. Whoa, that was a big step. So there was all this trial and error and these steps came up. And then um, uh, as I read more and more of the motor learning literature and new things kept coming out, I would, you know, add different things. And then it wasn't till one of the last things I did was, although we were including prosody, I didn't put that in at every step of the hierarchy, the temporal heart hierarchy, simultaneous production, direct imitation, imitation after delay, spontaneous production until, you know, the last few years of the, its development. So I guess saying all that is to say that you know, when you develop a treatment, it does take years. It takes a lot yes. of trial and error, and it has to be specific to a certain population. Now, Edwin Moss has, has used DTTC to look at some principles of motor learning, and this was with more mild, uh, moderate kids anyway, mm-hmm. um, not who it was really designed for, and it, it seemed to, to work pretty well for that group. So I, I'm thinking it can be adapted for other kids. But Here's the deal. I'll put the uh, 2020 article that finally got written that describes it all. The important thing isn't just the method. And this is true for all methods. The important thing is the decisions we have to make as we implement it. Mm -hmm. For example, what treatment targets are you going to choose? How many? What's the phonetic content? What's the length? And I know that there are different... um, you know, schools of thought in, in phonological treatment, you know, if you're, if you're going to take a more traditional approach, if you're going to use the complexity kind of approach. Yeah. And in, in CAS, I think the, the choice of stimuli may depend more on severity. 
mm-hmm. and actual philosophy, unless that child has a significant phonological component as well, mm-hmm. where you might combine the two kinds of thinking. You know, this right. is what we do is hard. I know, so I know. For, for CAS, yeah. um, the more severe, uh, going back to the motor learning stuff, the more severe, the smaller the set size. And then as one reaches yes. whatever criteria you've set, you bring in another one, yes. and the set size improves, it increases. Yes. Um, so choosing that, how are you going to organize your treatment? Are you going to use block practice, random practice, modified block? It makes a difference. Yeah. You know, how are you sure. going to provide feedback? Yeah. All of those decisions you have yeah. to make. And it doesn't matter if you're working with a child with phonologic impairment or dysarthria, you've got to make all these decisions. And I, you know, it's important to remember that that's the nitty gritty of being a clinician. Yes. Versus a technician, I think. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And so, you know, just knowing a method is just the first step, you know? Yeah, for sure. And being, you know, to have yourself as a clinician, to have that cognitive flexibility to adapt, you know, to what you're getting from the child. Like I think DTTC can absolutely be used for less severe children. And you might just start at a different point in that queuing hierarchy, right? You maybe, you know, it may be much quicker back and forth and, um, and so on. So, you know, well, these are also empirical questions that we will look forward to testing. You know, I often tell people I could get, you know, I, there's so many questions that need to still be looked into yes. and others that need to be replicated. That one, if, if one's interested in a PhD, you might consider yes, <laughs> and, and really work with someone that's doing a lot of, of work in yeah. this area because there is so much to still be answered that you could get through your pre-dissertation yes. project, your dissertation, all the way through tenure. I mean, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. Um, well, I love that. So I want to, well, this was great. I had this question written out. I feel like you might have just answered it. I was going to say um, for phonology clients, the essential ingredients for treatment really, I think, involves selecting the targets. Um, what do you think is like the biggest um, essential ingredient for kids with CAS for treatment for them? The way oh, that you're doing it. Yeah. What do you that's think? That's a great, great question. Well, I have mentioned the target. I think that's yeah. one of the important, and I mentioned several of the clinical decisions, but I think that if, if you look at the literature, but mo- also from my clinical experience, this is, to me, this is the biggest difference. In phonology, we're look- really looking at patterns of sound production in the rule governed system of phonology, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm maybe, you know, stating that way too simply for the phonologists <laughs> in the group, and I greatly apologize. Um, but in, in CAS, in my view, the focus has to be on the movement. Yes. Not the sounds. I mean, eventually, of course, these sounds are going to be acoustically appropriate and they will learn the phonologic system. But for kids, especially with severe CAS, the focus, both as an assessment and treatment, has to be on the movement. And if I'm trying to get someone to understand, a lot of times I say that and people don't know what I mean. And partly that's my bad because I'm not explaining it well, but a visual, and I can't do this on a podcast, but if you look <laughs> in the mirror and say the word boy versus the word B, you see that that movement for the identical phoneme, that voiced bilabial plosive doesn't even start in the same place. Same phoneme, boy, B. 
the movement doesn't even start in the same place. So that's the difference. You're focusing on, on the movement gesture, uh, not the, the pattern of sounds or the distinctive features of the sounds necessarily. I mean, that happens, but the focus has to be on the movement. Second is the amount of practice. I reviewed the literature recently, or some of it, of course, <laughs> uh, to look at what's recommended in terms of intensity, because that's a big, yeah. uh, and dosage, that's a, a real big, uh, important issue in CAS. And uh, I think the consensus at this time, and there's data to, to show this, is that the more frequent, that CAS kids need more frequent therapy, but, but also to maximize the, the practice trials during the session. Um, and I, I think that's a real important aspect of treating CAS. That's, that's essential, essential element. Having the child be able to watch your face um, because they get a lot of, of uh, cueing from watching your own movements. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally, DTTC really incorporates a lot of work on proprioception. Now we know that the way motor planning works is they take that afferent appropriate, the, the brain uses afferent proprioception, uh, proprioceptive information and has to, you know, you have to know if your mouth's open or closed in order to program which muscles are gonna contract right. so the structure goes in the right direction. So those upper motor neurons aren't gonna get the right message if they don't have good proprioceptive. And we don't really know if much of the problem in CAS is in the motor planning areas, in processing the proprioceptive information, both, we don't know. Um, so we bring that into DDC a lot. And I think it's important in all, we intuitively do it with adults with apraxia and dysarthria too, where you really help them pay attention. All you're really doing is drawing awareness mm -hmm. to the feel of movement having them stay in initial positions a little longer if they've had trouble getting there, uh, slowing the rate of movement so that pro the brain just has more time to do the proprioceptive processing. So I think those are the areas where um, the essential things you need to think about when treating CAS. Excellent. I think that's really helpful. Um, so how do you tell if a child with CAS has a concomitant phonological disorder? Well, with the real little kids who have almost no speech, it's real difficult. So we yeah. just decide they do. And <laughs> keep that in mind as we go along. Right. You know? um, so, you know, with the modeling we do and the kind of feedback we give, we bring that in as well. But um, once a child can speak and that speak enough so that when you do your phonetic and phonemic inventory, like when we do assessment for both phonology or phonological impairment or for CAS. If a child comes in who's a talker, but really unintelligible, we'll start with just play, free play, then structured play, where we take a phonetic and phonemic inventory. We look for patterns. We do systematic analysis, independent mm -hmm. analysis, like we all learn to do. And then um, as we go along, you know, then we can usually give an Arctic test and we can look for patterns. Yes. Um, so not any different really than one would do if you suspect phone, a phonological problem, um, if they're old enough to do those, those assessments. Where it gets tricky is how much do you want to bring in uh, auditory perceptual work, phonological awareness work. Some children need that as well because, and if, if one system goes awry, why wouldn't you expect, you know, other right. systems as well? Um, but I always found that part tricky. How much, you know, what's to gain and what's to lose? This is a mm -hmm. child that isn't speaking very much. Should I focus on the motor skill and wait for that? Or should I bring that in early as well? Mm -hmm. which 
taking up precious therapy time. Mm-hmm. It's a tough call, you know, and I'm always struggling with that, um, making decisions based on the individual child. Yes, absolutely. I do think, I mean, when we treat a child with CAS, a lot of times once the system starts to become more stable and more consistent, it's very apparent that they also have a phonological disorder. But I sort of can appreciate just assuming that they do, especially if you're seeing concomitant language um, impairments early on as well, then, you know, I think that's a probably a pretty good assumption to make anyway. Um, Yeah, that's the most common scenario, I think, for sure. Um, I have seen kids that uh, academically, I mean, we saw them quite early, but as it went on, they had normal receptive language and, but their expressive language was of course delayed, but they went on to just be quite academically fine, no learning disabilities whatsoever. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we have even more kids who right. end up with difficulty with early, early literacy, yes. and difficulty yes. on, ongoing yes. uh, learning disability. So I we, really we, try and drill that home. It is like 50 to 80 percent of children with CAS will have a co-occurring language oh, yeah. impairment, literacy impairments fine and gross motor impairments, like make the referrals, do the standardized testing and you know, do what you need to do. How did you, I don't know if um, in your role at Mayo, if you were treating language as well, or if you were just focusing on motor, what were you well, able to do? <laughs> Mayo has a, a system where the PhDs um, are part of the medical school faculty. So our job was typically to just do assessments. And we probably saw two third adults, went, well, two thirds to three fourths adults, one fourth to one third kids, depending, you know, on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had a large allied health staff who were, you know, master's degree speech pathologists who did most of the treatment. Now, um, I chose to do a lot of treatment with the severe CAS kids because I was testing, developing, working on this DTTC mm-hmm. and then doing some research with it with some internal funds. Um, so, I did, I did treatment, but I, but I didn't do any language treatment or treatment if it was solely phonological skill. I'd done a lot of that in the schools and in my private practice, mm-hmm. not, not at Mayo, but okay. certainly our yeah. other therapists did. Yes, yes, yes. And it is so important. Like you can't just decide that you're going to treat that later. Language is one of those things that it's like hearing. You need to address that early and often. Um, Okay. Yeah. I haven't also, I mean, because my lab, when we do treatment studies, we're focusing just on the speech piece. And so I usually will say to their school school clinician, like, oh, you can treat the language piece and I'm going to do the speech for now. Um, So that's what we did at Mayo quite a bit too. Some parents would bring their speech pathologist to Mayo and have a train them and how to do motor speech treatment Yes, and um, other parents of course couldn't afford to do that and so um, what we would do is communicate with the school therapist and usually we did make the agreement that you know you're doing a great job with language and literacy and even phonology we would we would advise them against working on sounds that were so motorically hard that it was disrupting kind of what we were doing getting you know getting him to say mom, <laughs> but, yeah. um, but that, that's a nice partnership. We've, we've done mm-hmm. that at the university of Washington mm-hmm. too. I'm, I'm volunteering time at, to be a, a supervisor. 
Sometimes oh, wow. the supervisors will call me in. They have a child with dysarthria or praxia or an adult with primary progressive apraxia or something like that. I get to go in and help. Um, keeps neat. my keeps my clinical uh, mind sure. occupied. Yeah, yeah. So that's well. That's kind of a perfect segue to our final two questions. So, um, what are you working on now that you are most excited about? Well, you know, it's it's an oh, that's an interesting question, and I heard that on a on earlier yes. podcasts that I've listened to. Um, and I should have thought about these last two questions. <laughs> I knew that they were going to be, and I didn't. Um, I'm very excited. I'm consulting now on some big grants. One that was given in Australia, which is multi-site grant all over Australia and two places in the U.S. And I'm. It's a treatment. You know, they're looking at um, uh, issues related to. Uh, treatment intensity and that kind of thing, but they're using DTTC. So I'm consulting on that. And I'm very excited about that work because so much more work needs to be, yes. to be done in that area. Um, and Rio Grigos has a huge NIH grant that I was fortunate enough to um, be able to help as we were, she was putting the grant together and now I'm consulting with her uh, on that grant. Unfortunately, the COVID is you know, stopped all travel back and forth, but thank goodness for Zoom, we're keeping the work exactly, going. Exactly. Looking forward to when we can start actually seeing these kids. Yeah, yeah. And then the Once Upon a Time Foundation, yeah. uh, which is a, a resource I'm going to, to put on the website, yeah. uh, has done an amazing job of providing a lot of educational videos and they're adding, they're going to be adding a lot more, but they also are funding um, the philanthropist who has included CAS in his philanthropic philanthropic um, organization, this Once Upon a Time Foundation, they're funding a few grants to uh, to answer even more of these questions. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to be involved a little bit in, in a couple of those uh, as well. So that's all very exciting. And then my volunteer work with the university is really fun. I get to be on doctoral committees and master committees and with my affiliative status. So, uh, and until COVID, I was continuing to travel uh, around many places, certainly all over the US, but also uh, Europe and whatnot. And I'm gonna hopefully, if my neurons continue to work as I every year goes by, uh, I hope to be able to do more of that. I love meeting yeah. colleagues uh, around the country and around the world and learning how different people do things because then I get to keep learning and changing and absolutely yeah absolutely well we just got word that our um grant agreement with once upon a time is official official so Excellent. we're gonna be um getting that rolling here in june so we'll actually be looking for clinicians in the u.s to help uh, administer dttc treatment so if anybody out there is interested oh, you're, please you're email me yeah. yeah who are you doing that with jenny um it's elizabeth murray me oh, right. Shelly Velleman and Donna right, right, uh, Thomas. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, right, um, right. again, Australian and U.S. together. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's um, great. I did get to look at very team. early, um, all the very earliest proposals, and they're just asking <laughs> my feedback on that. And I remember it now, but I haven't reviewed any of that in a long time. Yeah, yeah. That's, this is so exciting. You know, when you develop something like DGDC, um, you're, it's just very gratifying to have people test it does this, yes. does this really work the way we think it does you know it's it's 
And if it doesn't, what can we do to make it yes. better? Just so and how to make it like how to optimize. I'm all about like efficiency and optimization. So it's really fun to take something that we already know works and see like, how can we tweak it so that it's like the best that it can possibly be to work for the most children or to know that it's going to, this will work better for child A and this will work better for child B. And, and not only that, privilege. Yeah. when we think about implementation, you know, it, it, you can also answer questions like, you know, what if I'm in a school district and I cannot see the child more than once a week? What are the different ways, you know, besides parent training or teacher training or teacher aid training? You know, there's lots of different scenarios to help that child get the practice they need. Um, but those haven't been looked at enough at all. So just this is a very exciting time, actually. It is. It is. Well, I'm glad to be part of it. Um, Edie, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? <laughs> Oh, from childhood. You know, I probably can't remember from my own childhood, but um, my, this is a silly little book, but it was one of our favorites. It's called The Pokey Little Puppy. And what <laughs> I loved about it was it's kind of repetitive and it was just really great for language development. I just read it so many times with my daughter. And the reason <laughs> it came to mind is I just found um, the copy I read to her oh. and able to give it to her. Now I'm reading it to my grandchildren. So oh, that's why that. it came to my head. Yeah. Oh, that's As really for now, um, <laughs> this will show my age again and the things I start thinking about, but I'm reading Guande's Being Mortal, or I've oh, read it. Okay. And um, a lot of food for thought regarding our healthcare system and older yeah. people in general. So it's in, I thought it was an excellent book. Well, excellent. Edie, this was a wonderful time to spend together. I'm just really appreciative of your time. And, you know, I'm sure everyone will learn so much from listening to this and um, just kind of feel like they get to know you a little bit, which is really, for me, really exciting. So thank you. I feel you. that way too, because I certainly know your reputation and it just fills me with so much, um, not hope. I feel like there, there's such a bright future with oh, the up and coming people doing research in this area. Uh, in our field, we're all very lucky to be passionate about what we do. That's that's something I don't take for granted. So thank you very much for inviting yes. me. This was yes. fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. Absolutely, you did great on your first po your first podcast. <laughs> and um, Tiffany, we are of course sending you love and support, and hope that you're doing well this week. And we're excited to hear this air. All right, well, thank you all for listening, and take care. <music> Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.